just going to read um, from Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through to 18. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa, praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, surely not, Lord, nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent from Caesarea stepped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how, we had, how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then even to the Gentiles God has granted repentance that leads to life. Thanks, uh, thanks so much, Sam. Um, my name is Josh. I am one of the, um, the elders here and also on staff. Um, and please do keep that passage open. We're going to be um, looking at that and hearing God speak to us through that passage. Um, welcome to everyone who's watching at home on the live feed as well. Um, and if anybody wants a written copy of what I'm going to say, um, there are physical ones here. They're not available online just yet, but they will be available if you're watching this not live. Um, but there have been some physical paper copies um, at the side that a steward will get if you want to indicate that um, uh, now. Um, and as we come to, to the Bible, it is good to, uh, to pray for God's help. So let's turn to God in prayer. Father God, we ask that as we look at your word now, as we look at Acts 11, that your Holy Spirit will be um, speaking through words he, he wrote long ago, um, and that your Holy Spirit will speak to us in a voice that we can't ignore, and that as a result of this, our lives would be different. We would encounter you, uh, and in particular, we would love the Lord Jesus and uh, be in a church that reflects more and more of the glory of the gospel. We pray that you'd help us to, as we think through this, help us to understand and help us to put it into practice. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So those of you who know me might know that I used to work as a secondary school teacher. And one of the highlights of the term when I was a secondary school teacher uh, was our inset days. Now, you might know, not know what an inset day is. An inset day is a day where all the pupils stay at home and all the teachers come into school. So for the pupils, it's a great day. It's a day off. 
And for the teachers, it's a great day because it feels like a day off. Uh, finally, you get a day to kind of get on top of your planning and your marking and to get your head together and do all the things that you'd been meaning to do. It feels just like a day off. Um, and the cliche that we always used to say as teachers on those days was, don't you feel that school is so much better without the pupils? <laughs> now, probably one of the reasons why I'm not a teacher anymore is because I kind of, I really did believe that. <laughs> I, I, ended up, I ended up craving a job where you could just have an inset day all the time. Um, and if you're not a teacher, then you're having a day off every day. Um, <laughs> That was a kind of a pointer to me that I was in the wrong profession. Because it is ridiculous, isn't it, to, to wish to be a teacher in a school. And it's a school that's the easiest one in the world. It's got no pupils. But I think there is a similar thought that we can have about church. And that is that wouldn't church be easier if it weren't for the people? Or particularly, wouldn't church be easier if it weren't for people with whom we have to make a bit of extra effort, people who are quite different to us in their approach, people who are not coming from the same place as we are, and particularly that is going to come out when it's people who are of a different culture and a different language. I mean, I know that um, in our church, uh, many of us, uh, myself included, we, we love one another. We love being in this church um, we love our brothers and sisters. I love uh, every, every pair of eyes I can see. I, I love it. Um, and I love being with you guys. Um, and we love belonging. We love our services. And of course, we love Jesus in this church. But when we get a little bit closer, when we get in closer into each other's lives, it is true, isn't it, that there comes things that make life more needlessly stressful or complicated or unsettling and those difficulties are particularly because we get alongside people who are just not like us and so just like being a teacher is a whole load easier in a school with no pupils I wonder if you've ever thought that being at church is easier when you're not having to constantly make that effort with people who are not like you now if you've never felt like that well, I wonder if that is because you've tried to keep church at arm's length, because you know that that would be true. And if you have felt like that, well, the default reaction is normally then to kind of surround ourselves with people who are less work, who, with people who are more like us, really, to surround ourselves in smaller groups uh, over coffee or in a connect group or socially, surround ourselves with people who are just going to be more like us people who think more like us, people of the same age as us, people of the same interests and the same line of work as us, and especially people from the same culture and language. And we might justify that, and we might say, well, actually, that's where I'm going to be most effective as a Christian in our church. That's where I can minister to others from. I can minister to people whose lifestyles I understand, and I understand them, and I can empathize with them. I can minister to them, and they can minister to me, of course, because they know me. They understand where I'm coming from, and they can help me. And I get that thinking, and I get that church would be easier if all we had to do is stick with people who are just like us, because it is hard, and it slows things down to be constantly having to overcome a bump or a barrier 
or an obstacle or an extra effort and all the baggage it brings when people are so different to us. But you know, in this passage in Acts this week, the earliest church comes to recognize that an easy, same race, same color, same language, same interests, same culture, same cultural expectations church is just not what Jesus would call the church he's building. That's not what Jesus is doing. That's not what his blueprint for church is. And just like a school with pupils sounds nice, but there's no point in it. Well, Jesus is very determined in Acts to show that he's not building a church full of easy people who are just like you. But he particularly arranges church so that he gets glory when church is this awkward melting pot of weird and wonderful races. So we're going to have a look at the passage, and we're going to see in this passage three transformations that happen to three groups of people, from where we start off in the passage to where they end up in the passage. Three transformations that come from three realizations or three convictions that I hope that we will catch, that we will learn to embrace, both as individuals and corporately as a church, three shifts of thinking, three shifts of patterns of behavior that I hope will bring us from that point of feeling that church would be easier if people are just like me, away from that and into realizing that there is a delight and a God-honoring opportunity to bring to, to see that joy and experience the life of Jesus in the church when especially when we get the opportunity to minister to people who are not like us that's where I hope we're going to go so we're going to have a look at the passage and we're going to have a look at the first transformation that we see from start to end uh, the first thing a person that's transfer, uh, transformed is Peter and from the start of the passage to the end of the passage we see a transformation in Peter where he goes from Ugh, to aha um, sorry if you're making notes, the spellings are, you know, are on there. Ugh, to, aha. What's that all about? Well, um, let's get into the passage. Let me explain to you a bit the context of this passage. So what's happened before Acts 11 is that Jesus' followers are going around telling everybody the good news of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection and proclaiming forgiveness of sins because of Jesus' life, death and resurrection. But so far, that message has only been going from Jesus' immediate followers who are Jewish culture believers, from Jewish culture believers to Jewish people. And there's been a big rising up of, of people believing that, and so there's a big church, and they're, but they're all Jewish culture believers. But just before Acts 11, Peter, one of Jesus' original 12 disciples, he's a Jew. Jesus gives him a vision. And the vision makes him take this message of Jesus to a non-Jewish person. For the first time a gentile and his name is cornelius and peter goes to cornelius's house tells him about jesus and cornelius and his family become believers now verse one of act 11 picks up from that story news gets around of this and it gets peter into trouble with the rest of the jewish believers because he's been into the house of a gentile that's what the uncircumcised men in verse three means he's been into the house of a gentile and he's eaten there. I just want to explain why that's problematic to them, because I think it's going to be quite revealing later on. It's problematic to them because they think that he's doing something that is tantamount, equivalent to breaking God's law. 
God has given laws to Jewish people to stress their separateness from the world, separateness from other people who don't have God. Their culture revolves around what it means to be clean and unclean. And that is a God-given distinction. And being clean means acceptable to God. Unclean means unacceptable to God. And at the heart of that is because uncleanness represents sinfulness. But that kind of runs quite deep because it seems to be more than just a cultural thing, but a moral thing. Because, you see, if, if they're Jewish Christians and their culture se- stresses that they're separate from the world, they become Christians, they become believers in Jesus, but they still also want to be separate from those who are doing sinful things. That's part of the message. You repent. You, you move away from what is sinful. So to them, what is sinful is the other culture. And what is the right place to live as a believer is in a culture which, the Jewish culture, which puts God at the centre, right? That's a good place to be. That's a, the place that believers can thrive, in a culture with God at the centre. In a culture where the laws are God-given and are right and just and fair, that's a perfect place for Jesus' followers to, to thrive and believe. But any other culture is based on a worldview that puts a different God at the centre. And so how can you possibly... The fabric of that culture is, is inherently going to push you towards worshipping idols. So how can you possibly be comfortable in that culture and not kind of keep on veering into worshipping something else? There's a moral problem with, with being involved in another culture. You can't help but be unclean and prone to sin if you're outside the Jewish culture. So it's a logical step that these, Gent- these Jewish believers are picturing the Gentile culture of Cornelius as founded on idolatrous beliefs on false gods and their laws and their customs their ways of life are inherently morally suspect so peter going to cornelius's house eating with a gentile it's culturally off but it's more than that it's probably sinful so they say Ugh. Ugh, peter you can't have done that And Peter then tells his story. Peter from verse 4 to 17, so most of the passage, is Peter recounting what happened to him. And he's he's covering, actually, a lot of what is in chapter 10, almost word for word. So he's just repeating a lot of what you'll have read if you've read chapter 10 already. Um, He says, verse 5, I was praying and I had a vision. And in the vision, I was presented with a range of different animals and told to get up and eat from them, to eat them. But the list of animals that he sees is there in verse 6. That is a, a classic list of what is unclean to the Jews. So he's told to break God's law, essentially. Go and eat these unclean animals. And he says, Ugh, Surely not, Lord. I'm not willing to cross that barrier and, and, and dip into that sinful culture to, to start playing fast and loose with your clean and unclean divide. Ugh, no. And by explaining this, Peter is telling those Jewish believers, he's saying, I was once like you. That was my response. When I thought of doing something unclean, I would have said, Ugh. okay, so I'm not off on one something, doing something strange. I was just like you. I would have said, Ugh. and yet Peter in his vision is told, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. We don't really get much pause in the story. There's obviously something going on, but it seems that Peter hasn't quite clicked what that means. But the the spirit does tell Peter to 
go to Cornelius' house. And when uh, Peter goes in obedience to Cornelius' house, and when Cornelius hears about Jesus and his household becomes believers, and Peter sees the Holy Spirit coming on these unclean people because they've put that they've come to Jesus in repentance and faith and put their trust in him and the Holy Spirit comes. When he sees that, he moves from, ugh, and he says, I had an aha moment, verse 16, I remembered. Aha. God is doing something, the penny drops. At that moment, Peter begins to connect what he believes about Jesus with actually how he practices it in life. That seems to have been the problem so far. What he believed about Jesus, what he preached about Jesus and forgiveness of sins hadn't quite filtered through to how he acted in relation to other cultures. He just needed to to make that connection to actually realise what the gospel of Jesus means for how you view cleanness. Because the message that Peter brought, the message that Peter and all the Jews were were loving, they they were rejoicing and they were staking their lives on it. The message was that all of their wrongdoing and sin was taken by Jesus. Everything that would have made them unclean is taken by Jesus. It's nailed to the cross. Everything they've ever done wrong is is done away with when Jesus died on the cross. And so forgiveness of sins was possible and free. Let's make the connection that if that is true, then anything sinful in a culture can be forgiven. Every sin that might be a barrier to somebody knowing God that puts them on the outside, that can be forgiven. If the gospel Peter preaches is true, then that sin and uncleanness isn't going to be a problem. A pagan worldview isn't going to be something that contaminates a believer. That's not going to come in. We've got Jesus forgiving us. And a pagan worldview and culture is not something that can't be redeemed by Jesus. And every person in a culture that's built on false gods receives the same forgiveness as everybody else. That's the message, and that's the connection that Peter began to make. When he sees in verse 16, well, verse 15, 16, 17, he's seeing that the unclean ones are made holy because the Holy Spirit comes on them. He sees the unclean made clean and realizes that is the gospel. That is this beautiful thing we're preaching, that what was once sinful is made clean. So, Well, if that's what God is doing to the Gentiles, he says in verse 17, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? This Peter's shift from uh, to aha, that is the message, that is the gospel. And I think that shift for Peter can be ours too. Because I wonder if there's still some work that we need to do to connect what we believe and say about the gospel of Jesus and forgiveness of sins, to connect that with the attitudes we have of perhaps other cultures and their readiness for the gospel. Because it's quite easy, I think, to, especially if you're from a British culture, to be aware that British culture has its roots in a lot of its culture and its laws, its roots in Christian values. That our default position as a nation from our, just our culture and the things that we say and believe and uh, what is ingrained in the fabric of British life is, is quite a Christian thing. And so we're sort of, it's, it's easy to imagine that we're sort of closer, sort of on the clean side, if you like that it hasn't been a big step for us to come to know God because we're sort of already partway there. And then it's easy for us to look at other cultures, Muslim cultures and Hindu cultures and Sikh cultures and and pagan cultures and and think that because at the centre of the worldview there's 
a false god, they're more on that unclean side. I think we can easily raise those clean and unclean barriers. But that doesn't just happen at the national level. I think that can happen at uh, the level of subculture as well. People who might be caught up in gang culture or people who smoke weed all the time or people who live for one-night stands. Culturally, they're quite something quite different to us and we see them embroiled in habits and patterns and we think there's sin in that. There's just sin evident there. That must be the unclean thing. And that's a barrier to say the gospel is it's just going to be harder work to get there. Well, that's just nonsense. <laughs> that's just a lie. That's not really believing the gospel. The gospel is that that sin is gotten rid of. I mean, don't we believe that sin is dealt with at the cross? Don't we believe that whatever sinful habits and patterns is ingrained in a culture or habits in a person, when they trust in Jesus in repentance and faith, that sin is removed? Is there then therefore no barrier to anybody hearing the gospel? That nobody is a little bit further away and that we were never really on the clean side anyway. So if you look at someone who culturally, they are a million miles from you, well, please listen to the voice that Peter heard. Don't call anything impure that God has made. Jesus is teaching Peter that neither that person's culture nor their lifestyle is going to slow down God's call on their lives. And there's nothing about them that is so unclean that the Holy Spirit won't redeem when he comes into them. His ability to do that, we preach as the gospel. We believe that already. In fact, we've been staking our lives on that already. We ourselves know the truth of that. And that's something that comes out in the second transformation in our passage. That's the transformation we see in the Gentiles. It's the Gentiles in this passage, from verse 1 compared to verse 18, the Gentiles go from being avoided to anointed. That's the second transformation. Um, I mentioned at the start something about me, that I used to be a teacher. Well, another thing about me um, that you may or may not know is that I can speak another language other than English. I can speak Welsh. Um, and I'm sure there's loads of people here who speak another language as well. And if you speak another language, I wonder if you've had, you probably have had, the, the absurd experience of seeing somebody who doesn't speak your language being taught or corrected by somebody else who also doesn't speak your language. Um, it happened to me when I worked as a teacher. There was a girl who was saying something about um, where she went on holiday. She went on holiday to somewhere in Wales, um, but she couldn't pronounce the name. Um, I think it was probably somewhere like Llandidno. And um, another teacher who couldn't speak Welsh, he wasn't Welsh, he stepped in and said, OK, um, yeah, I know you can't pronounce it, it's difficult. The Welsh people, they, they've got this double L. And when you see a double L, it's a cull sound. So you just say Llandidno, Llandidno. It's, you know, it's not hard, Llandidno. That's how you say it. Um, and I kind of piped up and was like, well, it is a double L writing, but it's, it's a sound. It's, it's not a sound that you're used to, it's a sound. So it's Llandidno. Um, and the guy was like, well, I've got some friends and they live in Wales and, and they, they were saying, oh yeah, no, it's fine, you just say Llandidno, you say clan. It's just as easy to say Clangochlan, you know, that place. It's a bit of a mouthful, but you know, it's just a cult sound. 
And it kind of... <laughs> it's really very confused that... I wanted to kind of say, you do realize that you're not actually like a native Welsh speaker. <laughs> it's, you can't put your shoes in the... Put yourself in the shoes of a Welsh speaker and, and imagine that you can teach this and correct somebody on this. Because because you're not actually one of the people who speaks this language. You're actually foreign to this. Now, if it's not right for him to put himself in the shoes of a Welsh speaker, then it's not right for us to put ourselves in the wrong shoes when we read Acts 11. Because if this passage is a passage about the early church learning that Jesus accepts Gentiles, we are Gentiles. So it would be weird for us to read the passage and think that Act 11 is this teaching to a church in Liverpool that we need to be better at welcoming foreign people into our church. Because this passage is saying, you are foreign and you've been welcomed into Christ's church. But you know what? That means that this passage is profoundly encouraging before it is challenging. You are in this passage and you're a Gentile, unless you're, you're Jewish, um, but you are also in this passage if you're Jewish. Um, but if you're a Gentile, then at the beginning of this passage, there's, you've got no hope. You and I have no hope in this passage at the beginning in verse one, because Gentiles are excluded from God's people, because we can't come into God's people because we don't know the message of Jesus. So Gentiles have got no hope at the start of this passage. We can't hear the message of Jesus because, well, we're on the outside. We are not clean for God's people, the Jews, to, to come and tell us the message. How do we become clean? I need to hear the message, so we can't become clean. We can't become holy. We can't move towards God. We can't come to stand in his presence. God's presence, pillar of fire in the Old Testament, that's fire on the altar in the New Testament. We can't go into the temple to see God's fire and be in his presence. We are completely on the outside. We can't ever lose sight of that. None of us who are Gentiles ever had a birthright that would make us clean and holy before God. Truth is, anyone who is a Jew hasn't got that birthright to be holy before God. We know that repentance and faith is part of something that the Jews learned as well. So everyone's on the outside, but in this context, the message is only with the Jews. And our story is that we never had any way of making ourselves holy. So there was never a way of getting to God. You and I belong to an unholy people. So again, if ever you look at someone who is culturally a million miles from you, whether that's because they are Iranian and you're British, or it's because they're Indian and you're British, or because they're Chinese or Bolivian or Kurdish, or if you're from one of those nations and you look at someone from Britain, it's not that they are foreign. It's that we're all foreign if we're Gentiles. So it's not at all that we should avoid them. It's that God should really be avoiding both of us. But down comes Jesus. And he dies 
for the Jews and for the Gentiles. He dies on the cross to bear your sins and your neighbor's sins, your foreigner sins and their foreigner sins. And Jesus, having died for you, longs that he can bring into his family the foreigner, you, the Nigerian farmer, the Korean housewife, the Chinese student, the Kurdish taxi driver. He wants a family made up of all foreigners. And so he sends a vision to a Jew, Peter, to tell him to, to tell an Italian soldier the message of Jesus so the floodgates can open and he sends his spirit, who is known as the Holy Spirit. The holiness comes out from God. God's presence, that pillar of fire in the temple, comes out now as pillars of fire on every unclean person and they're made holy. Now you hear the gospel, you repent and believe, and you have the holiness of God in you. You have the Holy Spirit in you. That is our story. But you were a foreigner and you're brought in. And that foreigner next to you is also a foreigner, no matter where they're from. So when we read verse 18, that the Jewish Christians praised God. Yes, but don't you think that this is reason for Gentile Christians to praise God? That we can say even to us. I'll be on the screen. It's in your Bibles as well. Verse 18, even to us. God has granted repentance that leads to life. So there's the transformation for the Gentiles in this passage, from avoided to anointed, anointed with the Holy Spirit. And that's your story if, it is even your story if you're, if you're Jewish, because the sin that you have separated you from God. But if you're a Gentile, it's your story because everything else as well separated you from God. That's our story at Christchurch, that we were all foreigners before God, and he graciously and kindly sent his spirit to grant repentance. Not that we earned repentance, not we became repentant. He granted repentance to Christchurch Liverpool to give us his Holy Spirit, to make us holy. Our story is that we are foreigners brought in, and if that's our story, then Jesus is building his church out of foreigners, and we want to set up as a church where people of any culture are welcomed and received and celebrated. And not where we sort of distort that by separating off people from languages and cultures and differences into separate groups because it's just easier, you know, to get on with people like you. Well, that's not our story, you see. Our story is that we are all foreigners. We're a church where international students get received into people's homes each week for lunch where someone seeking asylum comes into your flat to make you food and then you watch football together if we're all foreign but because of jesus we're all brought near then then no one here is foreign and that is reason to say with the jews in verse 8 isn't it wonderful that even to us god has granted repentance that leads to life and the third transformation shows that that truth is not a challenge that we then have to sort of put up with and tolerate, but that it's actually an opportunity we get to delight in. The third transformation is the transformation in the church. The church went from saying how to wow. Let's see if that comes on screen. Oh, there we go. 
This is the third transformation. It happens in the life of the church. You go from saying how to go to saying wow. Um, the transformation in the church. Look at the believers at the start and look at them at the end. In verses 2 and 3, the believers, criti- the church criticised Peter for uh, visiting and eating with uncircumcised men. But as they follow Peter in connecting what they believe about the truth of the gospel that they love and they celebrate, they know that that's true, that forgiveness of sins is there and is ready and free because of Jesus' death. They connect that with what they believe about cleanness and realize that Jesus' death means there's no cleanness or uncleanness, there's forgiveness. They also then hear proof that the holiness, the Holy Spirit is in what they thought were unclean people. And so the transformation is complete. Verse 18, they praised God. They glorified God. They go from saying, how on earth can that be? To saying, wow, what has he done? I don't normally um, do this, but I watched this year, I watched most of the the Bake Off. Um, And if you've never seen the the Great British Bake Off, um, it's just a baking show. There's contestants and there's judges. Um, and you know what happens? I, I never ceases to amaze me how the contestants are so creative with the things they make. So they, they're meant to make a show stop, you know, a large cake. And uh, the judges come round. Um, before they're judging, they just come to chat with the contestants. So Paul and, and Prue, the middle two behind me, um, they come round and they say, OK, tell me what you're baking. And they say, OK, well, for this week, I, I'm going to be baking a, a massive, great big cake. And it's going to be like a, uh, like a grandfather clock. Um, and it's going to look really impressive. And, and they say, we're going to kind of bring some tastes from my childhood in. And I'm going to put certain flavors in it. And they say what they're going to make it like. And they say it's going to be raspberry ganache with cinnamon and cardamom and peanut butter and crisps and, and banana puree. And pistachio nuts. And sometimes you hear that, and, and sometimes the judges go, oh, that one, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, what? People know about that one? And, but other times you can see the judges say, oh, okay, hmm, I look forward to that. And they're just not sure. They say in their mind, how on earth can you put those things together? I think you're a bit bonkers, <laughs> because those things are not going to make a nice taste. And then it comes to the end, they've made this grandfather clock cake, and they bring it to the front, and the judges cut a slice out, and they eat it. They have to eat it. And they eat it, and they go, Whoa, you pulled that one out of the bag. I would never have thought that you could put raspberries and peanut butter and crisps together and that would make a a show-stopping combination. But that was amazing. And they say, I've never seen anything like it. You've thought about this. You've come up with this idea and I have never, ever tasted anything like this. And this is an incredible piece of baking. They move from saying, how on earth is that going to work? To saying, that combination is mind-blowing. And that's the same with Jesus and his church. Initially, the first believers there in verses 2 and 3, they're saying, how? How is it possible that a morally suspect, Latin-speaking Roman soldier who, who worships or whose culture worship pagan gods and who are an occupying force in our country... How is it possible that they are part of what Jesus is doing? How can the Jewish people who believe in Jesus have fellowship with the Roman soldier? 
How can people who love Jesus Christ be friends with people who work for the organization who crucified him? How can that possibly be what Jesus is doing? And of course, the answer is verses 14 to 17, as the story climaxes. The, the message that Cornelius receives is a message by which we're all saved. The way it works is that they come to believe the message, and they are saved by the message, and so are those believers, and so are you, and so am I. And that message is the message that his sin, the Roman guy's sin, is taken away, and the guy from India's sin is taken away, and the guy from Ghana's sin is taken away, and the Scottish person's sin is taken away, and the Welshman's sin is taken away, the American sin is taken away. We believe in that same Jesus, and we get the Holy Spirit, the one Holy Spirit, that makes us one people, and the result is this weird combination that we call the church. And we say, wow, verse 18, they praised God, they glorified God, they could say we've never seen anything like this before. How, what is God doing? This is mind-blowing. This is something incredible. And that beautiful thing is happening in Christchurch too. And I love it. This crossing of cultures, that welcoming of people who are so, so different to us, both subcultures and national cultures, it always does come with a how. And we always have people into our church and we have to think, well, how do you love those people? But recognising that I am foreign too, so how on earth should they put up with me? I don't know. You work at it. And we think, well... Ministry probably is going to be easier if you don't have to cross that barrier. If I just have a little group here with people who are like me and, and they can be in a group with people who are like them, that's probably going to make things smoother. That's probably going to make things more streamlined. We're probably going to get more done evangelistically when we can speak to the other person in the same language, you know. Uh, we're probably going to connect more with each other if we know where we're coming from. And it's just going to be faster and easier when we're not constantly misinterpreting and misunderstanding each other so how is that going to work and the surprise is that very ministry of learning to welcome that person and be one with them is the very ministry that Jesus is using to make people say wow about the church that very ministry of walking through the cultural stumbling block, of learning patience when the British people aren't so good at adapting to your cultural differences, that ministry is the wow about the church. That ministry is why people, sometimes, often, not all the time, why people come to Christchurch and see what we believe on our website and come in and say, wow, they believe it. They really think that sin isn't a problem between cultures. They really think that the other person's sin is done away with. They really think that the other person is holy. They really think that. Now, I'm not saying that we've made it as a church. I'm not saying that from now on we should just pat ourselves on the back. Rather, what I'm saying is that, we're, is that what Jesus is building in us, when we learn that patience and perseverance and forgiveness... When we do bear with one another, when we learn about each other's cultures and grow in Jesus together, when we love across a culture because Jesus' spirit is alive in us, then what Jesus is doing when that happens is, is beautiful. And so I want more of it. 
Let's keep doing that. Do you see that in our church? Do you see that in the people around you? Do you find it profoundly encouraging that as a foreigner to God, he's brought you near and he's brought your foreign neighbour near? You're foreign together and so you're no longer foreign. Do you find that profoundly encouraging? And is there somebody here from another culture that is equally as foreign as you? You know them, you've met them, but there's more you can do to make that beautiful. There's more you can do to make that wow. To have an invitation for coffee or for lunch or to rearrange and rearrange connect groups so that they can come so that we can display the gospel in all its wonderful dimensions. Well, a school without pupils still seems quite nice to me. (laughs) But a church without those cultural bumps and embraces just will not be a place where you're going to get the wow. So let's pray that Jesus would build his church among us and equip us not only to say the gospel, but to put it on display.